Now, why, why is it that, that according to science, modern science, evolutionary science, the universe encompasses everything? So if the universe is expanding, what is it expanding into? And why is it that we park in a driveway and drive in a parkway? And just your last thought, why is it that lemon juice contains mostly artificial ingredients, but dishwashing liquid contains real lemon? Now that we all have our brain cells churning, let's begin with the word of prayer. We need to have a word of silent prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship and ready to study God's word, ready to focus and concentrate and think about what God has to say to us in the Gospel of John this morning. So let's bow our heads together for a few minutes of silent prayer, and then let's get started. Father, we do thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to look at your word and to understand all the doctrines that the Apostle John has recorded with us in mind from so many centuries ago. Father, we thank you for the truths, the doctrines that are here and how they illuminate our lives and they shine the bright light of truth into the dark crannies of our soul and the dark crannies of our lives that we can bring them to the light and thereby bring whatever corrective measures we need to our thinking and to our living that we might glorify you by applying the doctrine in our lives. We pray now as we study your word that you would help us to see the truths here and how they apply to each one of us individually that we might continue to pursue spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. We are studying one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible, the third chapter of John, and we are down to verse 19. The third chapter of John, verse 19. Now, we saw that this chapter... It's part of a section at the beginning of Jesus' ministry where Jesus is in a confrontation with the religious leaders. It began earlier in chapter 2 when he comes to uh, Jerusalem for Passover. He goes to the temple and there he violently confronts all of the abuses of the temple and ritual where they are selling sacrifices and changing money at a great profit. And he has a head-to-head confrontation with the religious system and violently ejects the practitioners of, of religious extortion out from the temple. And then we saw that, that John makes a transition at the end of chapter 2, which we will see again and again in John, that he makes his own comment. And he says that Jesus, although many believed in him because of the signs that he performed, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the minds of man. Because he knew who man was and what he was thinking, then we get an illustration of the kind of men that are there. We're going to see the same kind of transition occur in this part of John 3. And we get an instance, a particular uh, example of the kind of thinking that is in the human mind with a religious leader of Israel named Nicodemus. And Jesus privately sat down with Nicodemus and explained to him that salvation that was by faith alone and Christ alone, that it was determined by regeneration, that there had to be a rebirth. There had to be a spiritual birth for man is born physically alive and spiritually dead. And you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And we studied his, his explanation to Nicodemus, 
and how he presented the gospel to him. And then we saw, beginning in verse 16, that John, as he has done already in John 2, after giving the discourse between Jesus and Nicodemus, John then gives us his commentary and further explanation and reflection on what Jesus has said to Nicodemus, specifically the last illustration, which referred to the incident in Numbers 21, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, and because of their uh, rebellion, because of their griping and complaining, yes, griping and complaining are our sins. I know that's hard for some of us to swallow, because one of our enjoyments in life might be griping and complaining at times. But the Scripture says, do all things without grumbling are murmuring. That is indeed a sin of the tongue. So the Israelites were griping and complaining against Moses and against God, so God disciplined them through a plague of poisonous serpents, vipers in the wilderness, who bit them, and that the only solution was that a, a, a dead serpent, a, a model, a bronze model of a dead serpent was put on a pole and lifted up so that any who looked at that could then have deliverance they from the from the bite from the poison the venom in their system and that that is analogous to the venom of sin that infects and is a fatal disease for every human being and the only solution is to look at the cross which is analogous to faith in Jesus Christ and anyone could do that and then in verse 16 John explains that to us in the most famous of all scripture verses for God so loved the world that he gave his only his unique son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. And there we saw that John explains that Jesus' primary mission in the first advent was not to bring judgment on the earth. He was not here to judge, but to be judged for sin. And yet, in the very act of rejecting his judgment on your behalf, If you reject that judgment, then you in turn will, as a consequence, be judged. And that's verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already. He's in a state of condemnation, not because of his sin. So very important for us to understand that the issue is not sin, because at the cross, God the Father imputed to Jesus Christ all the sins of human history. Every single sin, no matter how heinous it was, no matter how wicked, no matter how perverted, every single sin was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross where He paid that penalty. He died as a substitute. In God's omniscience, from eternity past, billions of millennia ago, God the Father knew every single sin that you would commit in your life. He knows the ones that you think are secret. He knows the ones that you will commit in the future that will surprise and shock you. There is no sin that he was unaware of in eternity past. And in his omniscience, he imputed every single sin to Jesus Christ on the cross so that that penalty was paid for. And under the law of double jeopardy, never again do we have to pay the penalty for those sins. So it's wiped out. Sin, there was a barrier between man and God is no longer there. It's eradicated. But man still possesses minus R. All of his human good adds up to nothing more than minus R. God's character is plus R. What the righteousness of God demands, 
the justice of God must execute. The righteousness of God can only have fellowship with plus R. So therefore, what the righteousness of God rejects in man, which is minus R, the justice of God must condemn. And that's the point of verse 18. That he who believes in him is not judged. Why? Because at the moment of salvation, when you put your faith and trust in Christ alone, God the Father takes the plus R, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and credits that to the believer so that the believer has the plus R of Jesus Christ. We have the righteousness of God in us. And so the righteousness of God can then look on the righteousness in the believer and what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. And as a result, God imputes to us eternal life, His very own life, so that we can have an eternal relationship with Him. But to the person who does not believe, verse 18, who does not believe has been judged already, condemned already. Why? Not because of sin that was condemned on the cross, but because his minus R is not good enough. So that at the last judgment, what is called the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 21, that or chapter, Revelation chapter 20, at the great white throne judgment, they are judged for their works. And God the Father will say, okay, let's add up all the good deeds that you did. And it's quite an impressive collection of good works for some people. They went to church every Sunday. They tithed. They did all sorts of things um, in order to accrue God's favor, to impress God with how good they were. And yet God's standard is miles above the best that any man can ever do. It is absolute perfection. And anything less than that is nothing as far as God is concerned. And God says that all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags in the sight of God. So the issue is not what we do. The issue is the possession of that perfect righteousness. And so the unbeliever is condemned not because of sin, but because he lacks perfect righteousness and his good works are never good enough. Verse 18, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged, that is, has been condemned already. That's the Greek word krima, which means condemnation the opposite of which is justification. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed. Notice, the cause is not because he has not believed and and been baptized or believed and done good works. Nothing is there. The basis for condemnation is solely a lack of faith in the name. And there we see it's not the Western, Western American concept or Western civilization concept of, of name which is just sort of a verbal tag. That's not what we're talking about here. In Hebrew, name refers to the essence or character of a person. And so here, when it says, believe in the name of Jesus, what we are to understand is understanding and believing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Understanding his character, his essence, who he is and what he did. That's what that means. The name of the unique Son of God. Verse 19 where we left off last week. And this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. I think these three verses express some profound 
truth and some deeply convicting doctrine, not only in relation to unbelievers, but also in relation to believers. So let's begin with some important exegesis in verse 19, because we have to understand what John is talking about here. First question that should come to your mind when you read this is, is he, when he talks about the light coming into the world, is this talking about the incarnation of Christ? Or is this talking about the general revelation of truth from the creation? And so we have to understand, to answer that question, to understand what John is talking about, we have to understand uh, some of the terminology here. This is the judgment that the light... So the subject here is going to be light. This is a favorite metaphor that is used in Scripture, but primarily by John. He loves the metaphor of light. Light is used as a metaphor for two things in relationship to God. One, to express His absolute perfection. 1 John chapter 1, the Apostle says that God is light and in Him is no darkness whatsoever. That indicates that God is absolute perfection and in Him there is no darkness at all. But the other way in which He uses light, and this is His primary usage as it is in Scripture, and that is in terms of revelation. Light illuminates. The purpose, one of the primary purposes of light, there are two, only one relates in terms of the analogy here, and that is that light is a conveyor of information. Light is a conveyor of information. Where there is no light, we can see nothing. We can't determine color. We can't determine shape. We can't determine what objects are. There is no information to get into our brain when we're in absolute darkness. What we've also discovered is through the use of lasers and other aspects of light, we can actually transmit information from one place to another through the use of light. So light is a conveyor of of information. Its purpose is to illuminate, to uh, reveal truth and communicate uh, information to the brain. So John uses it in this sense. This is a judgment that the light that is revelation or illumination is come into the world. Now, the verb here is, uh, in the Greek, is the perfect active indicative of the verb erkamai. Erkamai, E-R-C-H-O-M-A-I. Now, as a verb, it has tense, mood, and voice. That's how you parse a verb. So the tense here in this particular verb is a perfect tense. Now, a perfect tense emphasizes the, the fina- that a past action, an action that has occurred in the past and is completed action in the past with results that go on. Now, sometimes if it's an extensive perfect, it emphasizes the completion of the act in past time. If it is an intensive perfect, which I think it is in this passage, if it is an intensive perfect, it is emphasizing the continuing results in present time of a completed action in past time. So here it says, this is the judgment that the light is come. And that's a correct translation, emphasizing the present tense aspect of this revelation. Now, in terms of John, the present tense aspect of the past action would be the current incarnation. But remember, the present tense includes a past action, something that occurs in the past 
with results that go forward. Intensive focus on the present tense results of the past action. Extensive focuses on the past action. So even though you're looking at these, the results right here of the present incarnation, it still includes the idea of this past action. So it includes the idea of revelation that an illumination that has continually taken place or has taken place in the past. To understand light in any passage of Scripture, one of the first things you do methodologically is to try to understand how does the author use light. And for John, that's a very rich study, and we will develop our understanding of the doctrine of light as we go through the gospel. But for right now, to understand what John is saying about light, we have to go back to verse 9 of chapter 1. So turn with me back to John uh, chapter um, 1, verse 9. This is where we talked about this this morning, why it is so important to look at the details of Scripture. Because when God inspired the Scripture, it is inspired, we saw this morning, down to every yod and tittle. That, those are the, a yod, Matthew 5, 17 and 18. A yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And a tittle is just a tiny little mark, a portion of a letter. And this little mark, it distinguishes between the letter D and the letter R in the Hebrew alphabet, just like the difference between a C and an O in English is just a small little little uh, mark there, like the difference between fun and pun is just a small little mark, a little stroke. And that tells us, as we saw in our first hour this morning, that the inspiration of Scripture extends down to the minutiae of Scripture. So we have to look at every aspect of the original language in order to get the truth. So we come to verse 9 of chapter 1. This is review. We went over this when we studied that passage several months ago, but I'm sure you don't remember all the details, so we'll review it. There John writes, There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. Now, when we look at that particular verse, we have to take it apart in the Greek. And the Greek uses the verb, the, the imperfect active indicative of the verb eimi, E-I-M-I. And the imperfect tense looks like this, E-N, ain. It's a long E, ain. Imperfect tense. There continually was, it emphasized, imperfect tense emphasizes continual action in past time. It is an imperfect active indicative and a third person singular. So it would be translated, he, she, or it was the true light. Now in the previous verse, verse 8, the subject is the man introduced in verse 6, John the Baptist. So if we were to translate verse 9, he was the true light, the implication would be that John the Baptist was the true light, and that's false. The subject of the verb is the phrase that follows the verb. See, Greek is very interesting. Greek is an inflected language, so it has various uh, cases, and these can be, uh, the cases and the verbs can, and the clauses can be put in in any way, shape, or form. In English, we have to follow a particular word order. 
but not in Greek. You can jumble your word order, and it will always mean the same thing because of the inflection from the cases and from the tenses of the verbs and the, and the parsing of the verbs. So here we should translate this, the true light, because it is in the nominative case, tafas ta'alathenon, that's in the, true ca- that's in the uh, uh, nominative case, the light was, the true light continually existed coming into the world. That was the true light that continually existed. So it's focusing on Jesus as the true light, using that as the subject of the verb. Jesus is called the true light, which distinguishes him from a false light. The verse should be translated, the true light who enlightens every man was coming. And this brings us to the verb erkomenon, The verb erkomenon, which is a, an imperfect, which indicates continual action in past time up to the present. Okay, now that gets a little technical. But what this is talking about is the true light was coming. It starts in the past and continues throughout human history. And this is what is called theologically progressive revelation. Starting with the fall, really before the fall with Adam, and progressing incrementally as more and more revelation is given through the Old Testament period up to the present time. Not only does it refer to progressive revelation, but it refers to common grace. That that throughout the Old Testament there has been continual and increasing revelation into the world that enlightens every single man. Now, how do we know that this is talking about, in John 1, 9, that that's talking about progressive revelation throughout the Old Testament and not talking about the Incarnation? We know that because John is talking, starts off in John 1, 1, talking about Jesus in eternity. Then in verse 9, the shift is to God's revelation in human history, and you don't get to the subject of the Incarnation until chapter 14 when we read, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So everything from 1.1 to 1.13 is talking about Old Testament activities of the Logos in relationship to creation. So what I am saying is that when we talk about how John expresses the concept of light and divine revelation, he goes back to the beginning of time and says that throughout human history, There has always been the revelation of God in terms of common grace. What is this common grace revelation of God? Well, we see it in nonverbal revelation, and this is described in Psalm 19.1. You don't need to turn with me there. I'll read it to you. Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth His handiwork. What does that tell us? That tells us that the creation... The creation speaks non-verbally of the glory of God and of His essence. We see this same thought expressed in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident 
one within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. From the moment of creation of Adam and Eve and from the fall, all the way up through all of human history, there has been, on the one hand, a nonverbal revelation. We call this general revelation. A nonverbal revelation testifying to the reality of God from His creation. Along with that, there has been a verbal revelation uh, that has progressed through history with the revelation given through Moses and others down through the Old Testament. The nonverbal revelation is available to every single human being. Everyone knows that God exists. They may deny it. They may claim to be an, uh, an atheist. They will never admit that down deep in their soul they know that God exists, but they do. That's the testimony of Scripture. They may cover it up through negative volition with piles and piles of scar tissue, what the Bible calls hardness of the heart. They callous their soul with negative volition. So as calluses are built up in the soul, hardening them to the truth of revelation, they reject the truth. This is the the thought that is made in verses 9 through 11 in chapter 1. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. That's negative volition at God consciousness. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. That is the continual revelation of God to Israel throughout the Old Testament and the testimony of their rejection of him in the Old Testament. Now, having understood some of that in background, let's turn back to our passage in John 3, verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come. Throughout human history, the light has been coming and continues to come into the world. Specifically now, it is in the form of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the true light who has come into the world. This is reiterated in John 8.12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John 9.5, Jesus said, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So this is the judgment. The light is come into the world and what happens? This is, this is expressive of a, the characteristic of what has happened throughout human history. This is, John is not talking in verse 19 of just what's happening in his immediate context. He's not talking specifically, although it's included, he's not just talking about the rejection of Jesus Christ as Messiah during the Incarnation. He's talking about how this has characterized all of human history. This is what we call a gnomic principle a principle that is true in all human history, in all cultures, and throughout time. That as light comes into the world, men love the darkness rather than the light. This is negative volition at God consciousness. You see, at the moment of birth, we we have a soul. It's made of mentality, or self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, volition, and conscience. As part of our volition... At some point, we begin to learn. We learn who we are. We have a development of self-consciousness. And then as we go from self-consciousness, we develop a consciousness of other people, world consciousness, 
and then eventually we are aware that there is something greater than everything around us, and that is God consciousness. And that can happen, I think, uh, as, as vocabulary increases and we're able to think conceptually. It can occur anywhere from age two on up, depending upon the IQ and the ability of the individual and other factors. And at that point, we call the age of accountability. Once a person is able to uh, clearly understand and perceive that God exists and can understand the gospel and is responsible and can understand it or reject it, then they are held accountable for that knowledge. And at the point of God consciousness, their volition can be positive or negative. They can decide to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, or they can say, I want to know more about God. Now, over the years, they may get caught up in all kinds of crazy religions. They may appear to be very negative to the gospel. But at some point, when they're young, if they express positive volition then God, because He is faithful and because He is just, is just, He will make sure that that person gets the gospel. Some way, somehow, they will get a clear presentation of the gospel. Now they have another choice, whether to accept or reject the gospel at gospel hearing, whether or not to be positive or negative. And what we see here, this is the judgment. Light is continually coming. It came into the world in the past and continues to come in the present into the world And men love the darkness. This is the sad testimony of the human race. They have preferred the darkness. The darkness of idolatry, the darkness of the phallic cult, the darkness of religion, the darkness of astrology, the darkness of the occult. They have preferred the darkness of uh, human secularism, human autonomy, rather than the light, rather than the truth. Why? We see an explanation introduced in the Greek by the particle gar, for their deeds were evil. See, what happens is, as soon as light comes in, as soon as light comes in, the nature of light is to expose what is in the darkness. And this, the bright, intense light of God's Word exposes the sin that is in the dark recesses of our lives, the sin that we love, the sin that we wish to cover up. And so humanity wishes to hold on to their sin. They want to hold on to their personal autonomy. They want to hold on to life being defined the way they want it. They want to hold on to their denial of reality. That life, They can really get along without accountability and do whatever they want, whenever they want, and they will be accountable to no one. And so they reject the light and they live in the darkness. Verse 20, For everyone who does evil, Literally, this says, for everyone who practices evil. Evil includes good. We have studied the sin nature. We diagram the sin nature in this way. The sin nature has two basic areas of operation. The area of of, uh, weakness is where we produce personal sins, P.S., personal sins. The area of strength is where we are strong, and this produces human good and morality. Human good and morality have nothing to do with the spiritual life. There are many people in this world who are incredibly moral, incredibly upright with high ethical standards, yet they have no relationship with God, they have no spiritual life or spiritual truth, and this is all produced in the sin nature, and this is also defined in Scripture as evil because it distracts and distorts and keeps people away from the truth of recognizing their own sinfulness and their own need for salvation. 
some of the most insidious activities in human history have been done in the guise of religion and in the guise of morality. We think of the Crusades during the Middle Ages. We think of some of the holy wars that have been declared in the name of religion, even in this century, the, the wars and the strife and the violence in Ireland and the wars and all of the terrorism that has emanated in the name of God and morality uh, from the Middle East. So all of that is evil. It's done in the name of good and in the name of God, but it is evil. Everyone who does evil or practices evil hates the light. There is a conflict going on. We must understand this. There is a spiritual war raging. When you are sitting down at Thanksgiving or Christmas with your family members and you get the opportunity to explain the gospel, this is the dynamic that underlies us. This is what hurts us so deeply when those we care about and those we love reject the gospel because there is antagonism there. There is a spiritual dynamic taking place that the person, this is true even of the believer who is given over to reversionism and is not positive to, the, to doctrine at all, they hate the light. This is not a simple word. They don't just reject it. They don't just dislike it. It's a very strong term. They hate. They are antagonistic to the light. And they will be antagonistic to you because you represent truth. You represent God to them. You represent that and they hate that because your very presence is convicting to them and makes, causes them to, to face a reality that they are in deep denial of. And so when you try to explain anything to them, you can expect that rejection. But that in itself is no reason for us to not gently, with all respect, present the gospel. We always take a stand for the truth. Never push it. Never push them to a point of hostility and rebellion. Always being gentle, giving them the opportunity. Never pushing them in a corner, giving them the opportunity to come back again. So making sure that what they always reject is not us and not our attitude, but rejecting truth itself. That's the point of verse 20. Everyone who does evil, who practices evil, hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. This is the point. Light always exposes what is going on in our lives. We see this emphasized throughout Scripture. In Job 12.22, we read, He, speaking of God, reveals mysteries from the darkness. That's the function of light. He reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deep darkness into light. Into light, That is the role of God in our lives. If you are a child of God, then you are to continually be bringing the light of God's Word to bear in your life. And we dare not be like those mentioned in Job 24.13. Others have been with those who rebel against the light. They do not want to know its ways, nor abide in its paths. See, that is true of many believers. Oh, they come out on Sunday morning to come to Bible class. But you hardly ever see them on Wednesday night. They come maybe once a week, once every couple of weeks. They don't show up on Wednesday night. They don't really understand the process. That when we are saved, our minds are filled with all sorts of data, all sorts of information, assumptions, all sorts of concepts and constructs of reality. And yet, all of this is based on human viewpoint. 
Now, there may be some establishment truth there. There may be what I call borrowed capital. That means that they believe in absolutes, but on the basic basis of human viewpoint assumptions, they don't have any right to believe in absolutes. They believe, like an evolutionist does, or any secularist, or any non-Christian, that the ultimate reality is chaos, then they have no basis for believing that there's anything that's an absolute. Those are inconsistent with one another. But everybody's inconsistent because they have to live in God's world. So everybody at some point borrows reality from divine viewpoint. So we have some establishment truth over here, but the whole process of Christian life, Romans 12, 2, is that we are to renovate the mind. That means we come up here and we take this first principle and we pull it out here into the light and we let the light of God's Word shine brilliantly on that assumption no matter how dearly we hold it, no matter how important it is. Whatever it is, maybe it's a thought, maybe it's an ideology, Maybe it's an action. Maybe it's some behavior pattern. Whatever it may be, we let the Word of God shine its light on that, and then we do whatever it takes to apply doctrine to that, and we shift it over here into the category of divine viewpoint. That's the process of renovating the mind, changing our thinking. Romans 12, 1 and 2. We are to renew our thinking. And from day one until the day you were saved, the only thoughts that you thought were human viewpoint. And from the time you were saved, probably until you began to think analytically about how Scripture applied in your life, you continued to take in and have your thinking dominated by human viewpoint. That's our natural trend. That's the easy way out for all of us. And we have human viewpoint dominating our thinking, our problem-solving techniques. How do we face conflicts in life? How do we handle problems? Problems. We do it through mental attitude, sins, bitterness, anger, resentment. We do it through uh, uh, sins of the tongue. We handle problems by running down other people, gossiping, maligning. We do it through overt sins, everything from gross immorality to drug abuse, alcohol abuse, whatever it may be. But what we have to do is let the Word of God shine consistently upon our thinking. And folks, this can't happen in one hour a week. If you think that by showing, I'm, I'm not sure we can do it in three hours. And I'm hoping eventually once we get some other things out of the way, maybe next year add another night of Bible class during the week. Because I know not only from my study of the objective reality of God's Word, but also from my own personal experience that it's almost impossible to renovate the mind. I know it's almost impossible if you're only hearing the truth one hour a week and you're hearing lies 50 hours a week. It's very hard to go forward and to really do the kind of massive mental renovation the Word of God demands if we're going to think like Christ thought, if we're going to let the mind of Christ dominate our thinking. So we have to let the Word of God continually shine its light into every crevice of our of the mentality of our soul and every aspect of our life. The problem is that many of us still, because of carnality and because of sins that we particularly enjoy, we refuse the objectivity of God's Word. And this is another principle of application here, and that is that only the Word of God provides us with true personal objectivity. 
I am amazed as I talk with people more and more how subjective people in our culture have become. And I'm talking about every one of us in this room. As, as arrogance has dominated the thinking of our, of our culture, we have become more and more self-absorbed. Where the average person sits in the pew and is beat over the head with truth of Scripture that applies directly to them, and the whole time you're talking, they're trying to figure out how it applies to somebody else. Because they do not want the truth of God's Word to shine on their life. They can't even see it. A corollary to self-absorption is pure subjectivity. And we live in a world when more and more people are dominated by subjectivity and they have no objectivity whatsoever. And they judge everything. A corollary to when subjectivity dominates, subjectivity puts all the emphasis on the person, the individual. And what rises to the surface is emotion. And we live in a world today that emphasizes emotion more and more as it is dominated by the false gospel of humanistic psychology. Humanistic psychology tells us that we have to get in touch with our emotions. We need to make sure that we are, are emotionally uh, sensitive to people. And, puts all, and I think that the more we give rein to our emotions, the less we're self-disciplined. And Scripture emphasizes, never emphasizes emotion but always emphasizes self-discipline. In fact, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. That means you control your emotions. You control your actions. How do you do that? By just pulling yourself up by your uh, soulish bootstraps to make sure you don't give rein to your emotions? No. You do it through the application of the Word of God. But to apply the Word of God, you have to know the Word of God. Your soul has to be saturated with the truths of God's Word. And that only happens when you expose yourself continually to the Word of God over and over and over again. Because we are so easily led astray by our sin nature and so easily blinded by the world system. So what we see here in verse 20 is the principle that everyone who does evil, practices evil, hates the light. This is what is characteristic of the unbeliever and the carnal Christian. They do not come to the light. They don't come to Bible class. They don't want to hear the Word because their deeds will be exposed. Their thought forms will be challenged. Their assumptions about life that they hold so dearly will be shown to be invalid and they will have to rethink. And I would rather enjoy my sin than have to rethink my thinking. Verse 21. But he who practices the truth. This is the, this refers in context to the individual primarily who is positive at God consciousness and begins to apply, uh, seek more truth and more revelation in order to understand the truth of God's word. So it applies to the, po- the person, the unbeliever who is positive at God consciousness, but it also has application to the believer who is positive at uh, gospel hearing and who is positive to hearing doctrine. He practices the truth. He continues to learn doctrine and to put it into practice. He is characterized by his desire to come to the light, that the Word of God can shine into those dark recesses of the soul that make us feel perhaps uncomfortable at times because we know that we do not come up to the standard of God's Word. And it does take some work 
and some effort and some mental energy in order to renovate our thinking and to think God's thoughts after him and not the way our flesh would like us to think. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. So that the believer who is positive to God's word makes it his practice to continually come to the word. But if you're carnal, if you're out of fellowship, you're not going to want to come to the word. You're grieving the Holy Spirit, quenching the Spirit. But when you rebound, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You've confessed your sin. You're ready to move forward. This is the standard. To, to come to the light. To come to the teaching of God's Word continuously so that you can renovate and reshape your thinking. I think that gives us a lot to focus on in terms of the doctrine of light. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of of my life, whom shall I dread? There is a parallelism in Psalm 27.1. The first stanza, the Lord is my light and my salvation, is parallel to the concept, the Lord is the defense of my life. And what we learn from that is that if we are going to have the Lord operating as that defense, and we've studied this extensively in our study of James on Wednesday night, is that God has provided for our soul a defensive fortress to handle each and every problem that we face in life through the stress busters. These are spiritual problem-solving techniques which are derived from Scripture. And that Scripture is described in Psalm 27.1 that the Lord is the light and is my light and my salvation. As He gives revelation, we understand how to, the Lord operates as a defensive fortress in our lives with the result that we have no fear, no anxiety, no worry. Because we are relying upon God. Psalm 36.9 says, For with thee is the fountain of life. Notice the relationship in many of these passages between life and light. The true life comes when we have our souls flooded with the light of God's word. For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light we see light. That the only way we can understand truth in, in the world is under the concept of God's revelation. That if we do not understand history from God's perspective, from the starting point of the Scriptures, then we can understand very little about history. And that's what's why most people don't like history, is because they go to grow up in a public school classroom, they're taught history from the perspective of someone who doesn't understand that history is God's plan and purpose, and it's outworking in the course of human history. And so all they hear is a lot of facts and figures and dates, and they don't understand that how it all works together, and so it just seems irrelevant to their own life. We have to start with God's Word. In thy light, we see light. And then Psalm 119, 105. Thy word and a light to our path. Our path includes every aspect of our life. Our family life, professional life, education life thought life. Everything that we're involved in is our path. And it is God's Word that illuminates everything in our path and gives us the foundation for living. Psalm 119, 130. The unfolding of thy words gives light. That's coming to Bible class and learning God's Word. The unfolding of thy words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. 
Jesus said, I have come as a light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. But the sad thing is there are many believers who trust in Christ for salvation, but they remain in darkness because they do not take the time to study God's Word, to understand it, to believe it where it can become epinosis in the soul and then be the basis for growth in the spiritual life. And that is our goal. That is why God saved us. According to Romans 12, 1 and 2, God is in the business of conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. That means that God has a plan for your life and is to take you from where you were at the point of salvation and to work on your character until Jesus Christ is demonstrated in every aspect of your life. But if you are negative to God's Word and you're headed this way to live life on your own, then the result is going to be constant and continuous divine discipline because God is trying to take you from the path of autonomy and independence to the path of dependence on Jesus Christ and His Word and application so that He can transform your character, transform you from the inside out into the character of Jesus Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for this opportunity to look at Your Word this morning, to have the light of Your Word shine on our lives, to illuminate our thinking, to illuminate our souls, to illuminate every aspect of our life. For we know that only in Thy light do we see light. Only Thy light illuminates the shadows, illuminates the darkness that is resident in our soul, that is a product of the sin nature that so easily besets us and all of the problems that are consequent from that. So, Father, we pray that as we continue to come to Bible class, that we would be positive to Your Word, that these the teaching of Your Word would not just bounce off, but that we would respond to it, we would believe it, that it would be uh, as it forms epinosis in our soul, as a basis for metabolized doctrine in our soul, that it would then spur us to spiritual growth as we use it and apply it on a day-to-day basis. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.